welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 12 and episode 5, in which we're going to discuss a parable of Jesus, the parable of the ten virgins, which appears in Matthew chapter 25. We're halfway through dealing with the teaching of Jesus concerning the end times and particularly his second coming. We've been following the story as described in Matthew chapter 24. There are parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21 and we've used some material from Luke and have thought through the implications of how those three connect together. But Matthew's account is the fullest and generally in my teaching I'll go with the fullest account where we have parallel accounts of any event or teaching in the Gospels. So we've been in Matthew chapter 24 and it's good just to remind ourselves of the wider context because we are in the last week of Jesus's life, a week in which many dramatic things have already happened. They've been told to us in series 11 and we've been looking at in series 11 events like the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Sunday at the beginning of the week in great excitement with huge crowds with him. They were anticipating that he would bring in the kingdom of God as the Messiah and the son of David. They even thought he might overthrow the Romans and reform the temple practices and bring peace and blessing to the whole nation. Then on Monday, Jesus confronted the religious authorities by going into the temple, which was their stronghold, the centre of their activities, and he challenged their market trading activities by turning over the tables of the market traders who were exchanging coinage and buying and selling animals and birds for the sacrificial system as the pilgrims came to pay their temple tax and to make their animal sacrifices. The reason for all this, of course, was that there was a major underlying conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment in Israel, represented by the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council that had legal authority over the religion of Israel and the implementation of the law of Moses and the temple system. They had already denounced Jesus. They were preparing to capture him, arrest him try him and hopefully get him executed by the Romans. That was their plan and Jesus knew that and he confronted them concerning their unbelief and refusal to accept his messianic status and he pointed out the serious consequences of their failure because it would lead the whole nation of Israel astray and lead to divine judgment on the nation of Israel. We've seen that on Tuesday of that week, Jesus came back to the temple and had a number of debates with religious leaders. And he told three different parables which were aimed at the religious establishment, pointing out their actions and the implications of their unbelief and hostility towards him. And he ended by denouncing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as hypocrites. And we saw that in Matthew chapter 23. And then he left the temple area and it's in leaving the temple area and in moving out of the city and sitting on the Mount of Olives, a nearby hill just overlooking the city. It is through that series of events that 
we have the teaching that comes to us in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. He's teaching his disciples, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he's explaining to them things in the future that are going to happen after he's died and been raised again from the dead and after the church has been launched. So in our studies in Matthew chapter 24, we've noticed that Jesus has been answering questions that the disciples asked him after he made a very dramatic statement about the temple. So I'm going to read again the first three verses of Matthew 24. And we've looked at these verses in every previous episode in order to understand the context. And we need to do that again now. So Matthew 24 verses 1 to 3. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus makes a startling prediction that the temple, which had been there for hundreds of years, was going to be destroyed, not one stone left on top of the other. This really was a surprise to the disciples. And Jesus links it with his teaching that the nation of Israel is going to come under judgment. So the disciples ask three questions. When will this happen? That is the destruction of the temple and judgment on Israel, number one. What will be the sign of your coming? That's a question about the second coming of Jesus. And thirdly, what will be the sign of the end of the age? They didn't know how those three events were going to be connected in terms of timing and chronology. As we've been through Matthew chapter 24, the way we've looked at Matthew 24 has provided key answers to those three questions. In the first section, verses 4 to 14, Jesus paints a general picture of the age of the church in the centuries to come after his death and resurrection, in which there'll be a lot of turbulence in the world and a lot of pressure on the church, but the gospel will advance and be preached. Then, from verses 15 to 22 in our second episode, we noticed that Jesus taught specifically about Israel and the circumstances of God's judgment on Israel and on the temple. We also looked at a parallel passage in Luke 21 verses 20 to 24, which gives us more detail of those events, which took place between 66 and 70 AD. And then in the last two episodes, Jesus has been answering questions about the second coming and the end of the age. Those two things are linked together in his thinking and he points out they're separated from the judgment on Israel. And so we've studied from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, verse 51, lots of things about the second coming. We've found out that the second coming is a very public event. Jesus is going to come in glory and power and majesty. Uh, all the inhabitants of the earth are going to be aware of his return. Those who don't believe will enter into a state of mourning and distress. Those who believe, known as the elect in Jesus' teaching here, will be taken up in glory and join him in his kingdom rule. And we've seen that the 
suddenness of Jesus coming is a decisive factor. Jesus described it in our last episode as like a thief coming in the night. Nobody knows when a thief is going to come. He comes suddenly, he comes by surprise, he takes you off guard and there's nothing you can do if you're not ready and prepared. If you haven't locked your house securely, it's too late. And then he went on to speak of in a parable about a household where the master handed over the direction of the household, the management of his large and rich household to a senior servant. And he gave him management of all the other servants, all the procedures of the, all the house, everything that was done. The master gave him the responsibility for organising it all. Then if he went away, the question was, would the steward continue to look after the household or would he be selfish and exploit the other servants and spend his time drinking and wasting time and money? And the implication is that when the householder comes back, you need to be ready for him. Now that introduces themes that we're going to look at in more detail in Matthew chapter 25, where the themes of faithfulness and readiness are very important. It's such an important issue that Jesus tells four different parables around the themes of faithfulness and readiness. One of them we've already looked at, the parable of the faithful steward, which appears in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. We saw that in the last episode. But there are now three more parables, and we're going to spend three episodes looking at these parables. Today we're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins, and in the next episode, the parable of the bags of gold. And then we're going to look at the parable of the sheep, and the goats. They're all around similar themes. They're all very vivid, they're all very powerful, and they all emphasise readiness and faithfulness. Parables have a central meaning, and some of the details we can work out their significance. Some of them are a bit allegorical, and some of them aren't. We're going to focus in this parable mostly on the central meaning. Jesus tells a very vivid story and it's a story about a wedding and a wedding in Israel was a very important event and the readiness of the community for that event was vital. It was a community event and if you were in a village virtually everybody would be caught up in this event and participate in it and there were several stages to the wedding and the marriage process and often the overall event would last a number of days. John has a wonderful story of Jesus visiting a wedding banquet at the village of Cana you may remember the story which we looked at much earlier on in the teaching when they actually ran out of wine. This is because the event was going on a long time and there were obviously quite a number of guests and Jesus miraculously turned water into wine to help the host deal with a situation of extreme embarrassment and he sat and he enjoyed the wedding. Well, here's another wedding that's 
we're going to see. And here is the situation of the bridegroom coming to the house of the bride and taking her from that house and bringing her back to his family home, which was part of the ritual ceremony for many weddings in those days. We'll discuss all that in a little bit more detail in a moment, but let's read this amazing story of the ten virgins. The focus is on these ten young ladies rather than on the bride and the groom specifically. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Let's go into the background of the story a little bit before we try and work out its meaning and application. Here's the reconstruction that I think makes sense of the events described in the story. At the beginning of the marriage and wedding process, very often in Jewish society, the bridegroom, if he's living in the same community, which is obviously the case here, or living nearby, will go from his family home to his bride's family home in order to receive her and take her back to his family home where the celebration might continue. This could take place in the daytime, it could take place in the nighttime. And in this particular case, the context is the nighttime. Now, when he arrives at the bride's house, many people will be there anticipating his arrival, particularly her friends, her family. And there'll be a procession through the streets with the bride and the groom, 
the bridegroom's family and friends alongside and the bride's family and friends alongside. And if it's in the night time, then lighting would be needed. No electricity in those days. So torches were used. And then when they arrive back at the bridegroom's house, the bridegroom's father, who is the host of this particular event, will receive them back and receive the bride who will become his daughter, his daughter-in-law in marriage. And he will receive the guests and they'll open up their home to celebration and the party will begin. And if this is happening in the night time, then this party is going to go through many hours during the night time. Now, these festivities very often extended beyond the one day. So it's possible that in the subsequent days there would be ongoing celebrations in the village. So that's the sort of environment we're talking about. That's the sort of story that Jesus is telling us. That's the sort of culture that he's speaking into. And we can imagine this as a wedding between a bride and a groom who live relatively close to each other. They might live in neighbouring villages and that journey might take a little bit of time to go from one village to the other. But the procession is very, very important. And being ready for the bridegroom when he arrives is very, very important. And no one knew the time that the bridegroom would arrive at the bride's house to collect the bride, take her back to his family home in order for the celebrations to begin. There's an unknown time element in the story. And those who listen to this story would quickly understand that because that's their experience. Even in modern times, timing in weddings in modern Western society and the timing of the arrival of the bride and timing of events can be quite variable. And this can be a matter of interest in that particular event. But in ancient Jewish society, there was a considerable variation likely to happen. You had to be ready. The story starts by saying at that time. What is that time? That time is the time of the second coming. The topic of Matthew 25 is the second coming. The second half of Matthew 24 has dealt in detail with some formal teaching about the second coming, how it will happen, what is to be expected. But now we're talking about readiness and faithfulness until that time comes. And the story here is easily applicable to Jesus because the idea of him being the bridegroom is an idea that's already been stated in earlier parts of the Gospels. For example, John 3, verse 27 to 30, John the Baptist states, A person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears 
The bridegroom's voice, that joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. John here likens himself to the friend of the bridegroom. And he, as soon as the bridegroom appears, then he needs to fade into the background. And he likens Jesus to the bridegroom. Jesus himself uses a similar statement in Matthew 9 verses 14 and 15. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Again, Jesus likening himself to the bridegroom. So it's not difficult to see how this story connects with and other themes of Jesus's teaching. We know who the bridegroom is, but who are the virgins? Who do they represent? Are they the bridesmaids? No, I don't think they are. They're not stated as such. They are implied to be female, unmarried friends of the bride-to-be. They are gathering together in the bride's house to be with her in that time in preparation for the bridegroom coming and to be ready to join the procession that will go from her house back to the bridegroom's family home. They are unmarried women from the village or community who were invited guests and friends of the bride. What's the significance of the oil? Well, it's dangerous to allegorize too much here. The oil is what is needed practically for them to be ready. Some have likened it to the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't actually say that and we don't need that meaning for the parable to have its full effect. So looking at the details, if the ten virgins are the bride's friends, what is the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins? Well, let's go back and think about the torches or lamps. Probably they were wooden poles with wicks on them that were dipped in olive oil and then set alight. That was a standard way of providing yourself with a torch in the communities of the day. So those wooden poles with wicks on needed a significant supply of olive oil. Olive oil is the vital commodity here. And the wise virgins had made a decision that because they didn't know when the bridegroom was going to come, they didn't know how long the evening was going to be, they didn't know how long their torches were going to need to burn, they didn't know how much oil they would need, that they would take a large supply of olive oil. So they bought olive oil specially, took a large supply and bought it to the bride's house and their torch could be burning in the house if needed or in the garden and they'd still have more oil so that whenever the bridegroom came, there would be a reserve supply of oil. They could dip their torches in and go on the procession. The foolish virgins, the unwise virgins, just took a minimal amount of oil and their torches started going out. 
because they hadn't thought about the time. They hadn't really thought about the event. They hadn't prepared themselves. They were approaching this whole thing in a very casual way. And it so happened that the bridegroom came later than they expected, at midnight, right at the end of the day. They'd fallen asleep. They'd run out of oil. And the procession was starting immediately. Everybody in the household was preparing to go and go across through the streets from one place to the other in the procession. And they did not have their torches ready because they had no oil left. Now, obviously, they tried to get some off the, the other virgins who said, no, we haven't got enough to share. You'll have to go and buy some. They knew people who sold olive oil because there's always somebody selling olive oil in any ancient community. And they went to try and knock them up in the middle of the night. But while they were doing that, the procession started out and the procession got all the way to the bridegroom's family home and everybody went in for the feast and the celebrations and the doors were closed and the celebrations were continuing and were in full action by the time they arrived and knocked on the door but they weren't allowed in they hadn't been ready the doors were closed before the foolish virgins arrived and they're shut out permanently. It's quite a vivid story and would have had a big impact on the listeners who had experienced these kind of weddings in their villages and towns regularly. So what reflections can we make? What lessons can we draw from this particular parable? The only difference between the wise and the foolish virgins was readiness. Five were ready and five weren't. Five were considering the implications of being ready for an event which they couldn't pin down in terms of time. They didn't know when it was going to happen. So they were in it for the long haul. However many hours they had to wait at their friend's house, they had enough oil. They were ready for the procession whenever it took place. The others were not ready. So the application to us is that the second coming should always be in our minds. It is a certainty. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we do know that it is going to happen. And we should adopt the approach of being ready, of being committed for the long haul, committed for our whole lives to follow Jesus Christ, be ready in case he returns at any time. And if he hasn't returned by the end of our lives, then we have fulfilled a faithful life. We should not be deceived by the fact that the second coming has been, from our point of view, delayed. It's been delayed 2000 years since Jesus spoke these words, but its certainty is as great now as it was then. We know that not even Jesus knew the timing of the second coming. And therefore, the fact that we don't know when it's going to happen really doesn't matter. What matters is the quality of lives we live. We want to live lives so that if he was to return tomorrow or the day after or next week or next month, we'd be ready. We'd be found faithful as disciples of Jesus Christ. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.